want to start off by telling you guys about a short little story, but before I start, I have my friend Rosemarie right here from France. Met her 30 years ago when I lived in France and studied there. She's a teacher there, and I was um, in my undergrad studies, and um, she's actually filming all service because church in America is different from um, church in um, France, and so she was just like, super excited to come here. Please come up and meet her and her daughter Susie um, at the end of the service. That's them right there. Yeah. She's really looking forward to coming, so yeah, so welcome. Uh, bienvenue. <laughs> but anyway, you guys, I want to start off by telling you guys a short little story. Um, back when, well, maybe it was about four or five years ago, I have a good friend, Wendy um, Cannoli, who went to Stanford. She and I were chatting, she was like, Jazz, you got to meet my friend. Her friend, whose name was, um, was Elisa, I think. She's like, you got to meet her, she's really neat and everything, she played volleyball at Stanford, I think you guys would really just enjoy, enjoy one another. I was like, sure, I'll meet her, so I give her a call. She's pretty busy or whatever. And then she comes down from Palo Alto, say like in February. There was around New Year's Eve we chatted. She comes down um, in February sometimes. We decide we're going to meet 2nd Street, Long Beach. Everything's fine. I will be honest, I did Facebook stalker, just like anybody would do, right? And who's sensible? You want to find out who the person is you're going to meet up with. Couldn't see much from her picture. It was fine. Anyway, get down to 2nd Street at Park. I call her. I'm walking towards Starbucks. And I said, hey, I'm here. Where are you? She's like, oh, you'll find me. Uh, she's like, I'm at Starbucks. Keep walking, keep walking. Then I said, wait, I don't see you. She's like, okay, I'll stand up. And she stands up. And up, and up, and up. Ian, come over here, please. Ian's my, one of my students from France. I'm going to show you. Ian, stand up here. <laughs> and up there. There you go. This is Jazz, and that is her, you guys. And Wendy sets us up. Kind of funny. And of course, when I hug her, hug me, man. There you go. She bends over to hug me. I, I look like a tiny munchkin to her. It was funny because I thought, okay, you can have a seat. Thanks, Ian. <laughs> no, he's 6'5". She was 6'5 with heels. Uh, with, excuse me. With heels, she was like 6'10", and I'm 5'10". She was a foot taller than I was, you guys. I look like a little kid, and what happens? She pats me on the head. She didn't do that, you guys. I would have been like, girl, what you doing? You know? <laughs> she did not pat me on the head, but it was funny and it was kind of cute. You know, we wind up hanging out for about two hours at Starbucks, and then I walk into her car. Worst thing possible could happen. What's that? I see one of my students. There you go. I'm walking, and she looks, and she smiles, and she giggles. And I'm like, now, homegirl, I don't know. I carry my red book, a red pen, and a roll book in my car. I'll, you know, tear a grade up. She'll keep doing that to me, you know? <laughs> Actually, I wouldn't do that. But anyway, it was just a funny situation. Get to school on Monday, of course she's telling all the kids in class, I saw Monsieur T and da 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 and then she's looking at me and she's smiling. And then she tells me in French, you know, uh, bonjour Monsieur T, and you know, we're talking and everything, and that's then after that she says, your friend was really pretty and really, really, really tall. <laughs> and I'm thinking, okay, it's 8 o'clock in the morning, I'm home, girl, got jokes already, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> the reason I share that story is because it was a twist of events. Normally, the guy is taller than the girl. In this case, the girl was much, much, much taller than the guy. It was what it was. We have a story that's similar. There's a twist of events when we think about Jonathan and David, okay? And when we talk about, think about Jonathan, who is the prince, who is normally to become the king, but he doesn't. In fact, he's okay with being second in line, which is kind of irregular for most of us. And starting, though, I want to give a recap of the things that we've been studying, okay? Bill spoke on Joseph and his deep conviction. And the one thing that stood out was when Joseph says in Genesis 39.9, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? He was a man of deep conviction. Tommy spoke on Jeremiah, where he talks about God, you know, God being with him in the midst of very difficult times and how he would care for the weak and everything. 
Jeremiah cared for the weak, he cared for the outcasts, he cared for widows. But also, you guys, he cared for orphans. And Tommy painted a beautiful picture of what an orphan could look like. He says, you could be an orphan because you're alone. You can be alone by being in a room of maybe 200 people, but feeling like there's really no one who knows you or you're really not connected to anyone. I thought, man, I felt that way before. I felt totally like, man, I'm alone. I felt that way in church before, in social situations, even in a Bible study I attended, or even in our staff meetings one time, I remember just feeling like, man, I'm pretty alone right here. The thing is, I wasn't alone because you know what? Just as, just as God was with Jeremiah, just as he was with Daniel, just as he was with many others, he reminded me, Jazz, I'm with you. You might feel alone, but you're not alone. J.D. spoke on Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute. That just reminded us that God can use anyone, you guys. It didn't matter what her background was. She was actually usable to the Lord. And Todd actually spoke on Daniel. And one thing that Todd said that I thought was pretty key was he decided early in life to follow God. I think that is an exhortation for us to decide beforehand that we're going to obey. There's a running theme of commonalities right here. It's humility, pointing people to God, and a concern for others. We well, look at that title, Renegades, uh, is it up there? Yeah, there we go. Rascals, Renegades, uh, Rascals, Renegades, Radicals, and the Remarkable Responder. Jonathan was like that. Also, he was a rascal as in, I can't believe he did that, that little rascal. He was kind of like a rascal in doing that. He was also a renegade and somebody who goes against the cultural norm. You would never expect somebody who's gonna be king to be like, you know what, I'm okay being second in line. Yeah. I would also say that is extremely radical because if somebody told me I was going to be king, I'm like, yep, I want everybody bowing down, 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 down. Yeah, that wasn't his attitude, you guys. But most of all, he was the remarkable responder. Yeah, he was a remarkable responder because he responds in a way that is completely shocking to all of us. However, <clears throat> wow, there's a lot of feedback. Do I need to move back or something? You guys don't hear it? Okay, it's just me. Thanks. Okay. Um, this morning... We're going to take a look at the life of Jonathan. We all know the story about King David, okay? Um, he slayed Goliath, and what happened was Saul raised him up. Um, Saul's son Jonathan becomes best friends with David. Um, actually, David winds up then becoming more popular than um, King Saul. King Saul winds up getting jealous of him and everything and tries to kill him. But David eventually becomes king. When David becomes king, you guys, something that's really crazy is he actually um, makes some pretty poor choices. I don't know if you guys remember the story of um, Bathsheba. That was a late, you guys remember that, Bathsheba? Well, anyway, she's a woman that he wound up committing adultery with. He winds up murdering her husband Uriah. He winds up lying about it. Nathan the prophet confronts him on it. And then one thing I say about Bathsheba is that should have been a warning to him. She was a lady who did what? She took a bath on a roof. Any woman who takes a bath on a roof got some issues going on. She ain't wrapped too tight. There you go. Who does that, you guys? That should have been a warning sign to him that this is not a good idea. He does it anyway. He gets confronted, but you know what I love, you guys? He repents of it. And if you look at Psalm 51, verses 10 to 12, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He knew what he had done was wrong, and he repents of it. And the reason I love this story, you guys, is it reminds me of what Jamie talked about. God can use anyone in spite of their background. That applies to all of us even right now. However, I think we all identify with David's sin. We've all made mistakes somewhere along the way. But I think we'd love to identify with the success in his fanfare. Well, this morning, I want us to take a look at the life of Jonathan and seek to identify with Jonathan. Yeah, seek to identify with Jonathan, David's best friend, King Saul's son, who was supposed to succeed him as king. Little is said about Jonathan. I think he's spoken of in maybe about five chapters in 1 Samuel. 
But when we read about him, he's actually the unsung hero because unlike David, he wasn't a king or followed by thousands or had songs sung about him. However, he was a hero because he was just like Jesus Christ. In the first Samuel 18 to 20, we're going to examine four qualities that talk about how he was like Jesus Christ. Point number one, if you have your outlines and if you're taking notes, okay, is how was he like Jesus Christ? He was selfless. He was selfless. First Samuel 18, 1 through 4, says David had finished talking with Saul. Jonathan became one in spirit with David, um, one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day on, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as he loved himself. Jonathan took off his robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Before I jump into this section, I want to share something with you guys. Most of you are probably like I am. I thought they were like the same age because they were homies kicking it all the time. They weren't. He was significantly older. When actually Jonathan became king, he was 30. When David became king, he was 30. Jonathan was 58. He was 28 years older. He was old enough to be his father. When I think of that, you guys, I think that takes great humility to submit to your subordinate. That would be like little Johnny. Uh, well, you're not little. Sorry about that, man. That would be like Johnny Black over here, who was in my Spanish class, and my sitting here saying, I'm willing to submit to your authority. That would be kind of hard, you guys. I'm old enough to be the fellow's dad, you know? But that's where Jonathan's heart was because he was so humble. He didn't consider the throne something to be grass, but he was willing to relinquish it for others' sake, okay? Where do we see this in Scripture? If you look at Philippians 2, 3, verses 3 and verses 5 to 7, it says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. He wasn't about himself. He was about, he was about what does God want, what is best for the kingdom. And then if you go on, it says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Christ stepped out of heaven, down to earth, gave up his rightful place. So what? We can experience eternal life. Jonathan does that with David. He says, the kingdom should be mine. I should be the king. But you know what? I will not do that because that's not what's God's best. That takes extreme selflessness, you guys. Look at verse 4. It says he took off his tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. He even gave David the robe that was fit for a king. He wasn't about self, but what was best for all. He wasn't dilatory in his response. He didn't delay. He didn't say, well, let me think about this. No, he obeyed immediately. And that just reminds me once again about Daniel and Joseph, which they spoke of um, the last two weeks. He obeyed immediately, and we realized that delayed obedience usually leads to disobedience, okay? The reason he could respond obediently is because he was selfless. There was someone who um, responded to God's call in my life, and it blessed me like crazy. And that was my buddy Scott Corley. When I was a freshman, sophomore at LSU, he was a senior. He was a senior, last semester, taking 18 hours, engaged, going on staff recruit, raising support. And I remember saying, will you disciple me? I need someone to pour into my life and mentor me. He says, you know what, Jazz? Let me pray about this. I remember he took about two weeks. He prayed about it. We met on the steps of the, the, the law school library. And he says, God has told me, yes, to pour into your life. You guys, that was the best thing that could have, or one of the best things that could have ever happened. And I said it because I was still kind of wild, still doing my own crazy things, clubbing with my friends, hanging out with my wild friends and all that stuff. 
And when he actually discipled me, I'll say this, it cost him in so many ways. It cost him time, you guys. I mean, taking 18 hours and going on staff and engaging everything, it cost him uh, emotional energy because I was kind of like a mess. I was loving Jesus, but I was still doing crazy stuff. And it cost him spiritual energy, you guys. He would wake me up at 7 o'clock in the morning and go and, do, go and have my quiet time with him and stuff. It cost him. But he was selfless, and he saw a greater picture. I will invest in this little, wild, crazy kid's life right now. You see, when it comes to responding obediently, you guys, as Jonathan did and dying to self by giving up the kingdom, God will show us what we need to do. But I'll say this, Satan will always present an option. God will tell us what to do, but Satan's also going to give us an option, okay? Take Jesus, Luke 4, verses 1 through 13. In the desert, what happens? He's fasting, spends great time with the Lord and everything. Satan comes right around there, poking his nose out, saying, you do this, I'll give you that. You do this, I'll give you that. Since you are, or if you are, you know, um, such and such, I'll do this for you. Jesus rebukes him by quoting scripture and everything. The same thing happens to us. Yeah, God will tell us what to do. Satan will present us with an option to try and get us to do the opposite thing. You know, the same thing happened to Jonathan. And guess who Satan used? His own father. Because he was so obsessed and so selfish about holding on to that kingdom and passing it on to his own son, he didn't want to let go of it. And we read that in 1 Samuel 20, 31. Todd told us last week, we have to be like Daniel and decide beforehand to make the right decisions. Otherwise, we'll react. But if we decide in advance to obey regardless of the outcome, we're like Jonathan. We actually become that remarkable responder. You see, all of our decisions actually have consequences. They all have consequences. For everyone, it's never just about you. If you read the Old Testament, we read about uh, people paying the sins for, um, you know, for, for, for um, their forefathers. We read, um, you know, it talks about um, generational curses that have to be broken. We know that, you know, even in our country, we experience the effects of slavery even until today. And think about it, when a dad leaves his wife or, you know, the young secretary, it doesn't affect just the wife. It affects the kids. It affects neighbors. Everyone, be, you know, gets doubtful. Women start thinking, will my husband do that to me? Our sin has consequences, you guys. It's not just about us. It's about everyone. I love this because Jonathan always considered the cost. And he was selfless and he was willing to do what was right in order that others might be blessed. John's decision not to fight to keep the kingdom allowed God to establish Christ's lineage hundreds of years later. How? Because he was selfless. I cringe at some of the selfish things I used to do back in the day. And now I do things, but differently. But, you know, back in the day, you guys, when I was in high school and college, don't y'all judge me after I tell y'all, right? When I would go into the store, I used to prepackage my own, like, underwear or socks. I would go, and if they had a package of six, and they had, like, three black pairs of socks, and two blues and one something else, if I wanted all black, I'd open up all these other packages, and I'd put all the black ones together, and then I'd seal the other ones. I used to prepackage my own stuff. And then I'd go up to the register and I'd pay. I didn't put an extra on it because that's stealing. And then I'd pay. And the lady would be like, oh, someone opened this. I need to give you a 10% discount. And I'd be like, go ahead on. <laughs> that was my attitude, you guys. Not only did I change it, I mean, I let the lady give me a discount. I mean, it's, I mean, come on, y'all. That's just wrong, right? You guys are agreeing with me that it's wrong, right? Don't y'all go try that, all right? <laughs> okay. But anyway, you guys, that's kind of like where my heart was. I did what benefited jazz. Why? Because my eyes were on myself. I was just kind of self-absorbed at the time. And it's kind of sad, but, you know, it's kind of like a disobedient, prideful, hard heart. Wow, because I was focused on self and not really thinking about others. Are you willing? Here's a question. Are you willing 
to do what's right, even when that means you get no promotion, no shout out, or it doesn't directly benefit you. I found out that it takes, it takes knowing yourself and being at peace with who you really are. But it really takes knowing God and his infinite power to work in your life in spite of your present circumstances. Our biggest fear is who will take care of me? Who will take care of me? That's what drives me to selfishness. I don't trust God. But if you look in Hebrews 11:6, it says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. If any man would come after God, he must first believe that he exists and God will reward those who earnestly seek him. God will reward. That's a promise. God's gonna take care of you guys. Yeah, when I walk in obedience, he's going to cover me. I don't have to worry. I don't have to fend for myself and become all selfish and self-absorbed. He will take care of me. And what I love about this is uh, Jonathan, we see that in his life, and we'll see, you know, even in another section of this time this morning. But we can respond selflessly like Jonathan when we realize God will take care of us. Point number two. How is Jonathan like Christ? He was loyal. 1 Samuel 19, 1, 2, 3. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David and warned him, My father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and will tell you what I find out. Though Jonathan was being loyal to David by protecting him from his father, the bottom line is he was actually extremely loyal to God. It reminds me of Bill's teaching a few weeks ago in Genesis 39.9 where Joseph says what? How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Jonathan wanted to protect his buddy, but if anything, he was thinking, how can I honor the Lord? I want to be loyal to the Lord. And though it appealed that neither of these brothers, you know, when you think about Joseph or Jonathan or Daniel, that um, their loyalty to the Lord would advance them, they still had the bigger picture in mind just like Christ. Obey and sacrifice now to see the glory of the Lord later. So not only was Jonathan loyal to David by putting his life at stake, most of all, he was loyal to God. He sought to honor God before his earthly father because he loved God more than anything, even the position of king. His loyalty really shows forth in 1 Samuel 24. Jonathan said to David, whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. Not only did he yield the throne to him, he protected he empowered, and he advocated for him. You know, we use the term helicopter mom in a negative sense. He was basically a helicopter mom, you guys. But in the most positive of a sense, in the most healthy of a way. I know it sounds crazy, but he, he did everything he did in his power to protect him. If we look at 1 Thessalonians 2, 78, that's in the New Testament, um, Paul is talking to the church of Thessalonica, and he did all that he could to make sure this church would grow in a healthy manner. And he actually says, but we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her own children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you'd become so dear to us. He'd actually become super dear to Jonathan. David has, I'm talking about. But what happens in there, you guys, is um, when you look at that piece in 1 Thessalonians, and it says like a mother caring for a child, in some versions it says a mother caring for a nursing child, or a nursing mother caring for a child. When a mom holds that child and nurses with that child, that is the most intimate and the closest that that child will ever get to that parent. That's what he was like with David. He held him close to him, protecting him from everything, even his own father. That's the love that he had for his brother. He wanted everything to go well for him. And if you look at verses 11 to 12 in that same book, 1 Thessalonians 2, it says, we dealt with you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, urging you to live godly lives. 
Later on, we see in 2 Samuel 11, David committed adultery with Bathsheba. He lied, he murdered. I don't know if you guys ever came across this or ever thought about it, but all of this happened after Jonathan had died. I'd venture out to say, the reason that this happened with David, you guys, is because he had no checkpoints. He had no one checking in on him. We need those friends. We need those friends. Many of us would love to do life on our own because it seems easier, you know? Get out of my business, you know? I don't want you in it, or something like that. That is such a danger. We need those checkpoints. Having people involved in our lives takes strength because you have to be humble, honest, and pretty secure. And you have to be secure enough to admit that you don't have it all together, and you have to be secure enough to admit your weaknesses. I ask you, do you have a Jonathan? Do you have a Jonathan? Worked at this Christian camp 15 years ago. Great counselors. You know, I think I had about 16 counselors. I was a men's staff counselor that summer. And guys were just, you know, seeking to love the Lord and everything. Well, you know, two years, three years passed by. One of the guys started just kind of failing in his walk with the Lord. Yeah, making unwise choices and everything. I remember all the guys got together with him, or maybe about five of the guys got together with him and were chatting with him. And he just started sharing what was going on. He, you know, just fell into, you know, pretty poor behaviors. Just started um, going to bars all the time. Then from bars, he went to strip clubs. And the guys were talking to him, saying, but buddy, you don't have to do this. And he's like, yeah, I know. He's like, but it's kind of like where I am. And one of the guys stood up and said, you know what? Next time you're tempted to do anything that is not healthy for you, you call me at any time. It doesn't matter. Tuesday night, that buddy gets that call. It's about 11 o'clock at night. He tells him, I'm at a strip club right now. I'm about to go in. That other buddy drives two hours to go rescue him. You know what, you guys? That was actually the link in a chain that actually broke the power of sin in his life. That buddy driving two hours, putting his arm around him, hanging out with him in a car, praying over him, letting him know you don't have to do this. That other fellow now loves Jesus, married with two kids, and is doing damage for the kingdom of God. But that happened because he had a loyal friend who was willing to walk with him through that painful time and said, you call me at any time. Only by the grace of God do I have a few friends that I could call at any time and I know that they're gonna be there for me. I know they're gonna be there for me. The thing is, I need them because I do get in trouble, you guys. I experience pain, I experience discouragement, I experience you know, a lapse in a wise judgment where I need to tap into those friends so they can speak truth into me. Bill and I were meeting this past week, and I told him about something I was struggling with, you know, regarding a sermon, and he's like, Jazz, you need to do it this way. And he, he wasn't commanding or overbearing or whatever, but he just spoke life into me, you guys. That's what I needed. We've got to have those kind of friends with us. We've got to have those kind of friends. My question now is, are you that kind of friend? Yeah. Are you that kind of friend? Can you be called at 3 a.m. when someone has that tough time going on? But also, do you have that kind of friend that you can disturb at any time? It's a necessity in our lives. It's a necessity in our lives. In 1 Samuel 23, 17, it says when David was wandering in his faith, um, Jonathan actually strengthened him and reminded him of God's promises. He was that loyal friend to him. In 2017, and it says, and Jonathan, and, David and Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love because he loved him as he loved himself. Let me explain this passage very quickly because people read this, and when I went online to look up something, I was like, what are they talking about? And I saw some liberal theologians actually affirming homosexuality through this verse. I'm like, that is so diabolical. That's not what this is saying. What that verse is actually saying is it was a actually political and diplomatic love, okay? 
Um, they were actually going to war together. It's kind of like the Marines, you never let your brother down. You never leave him behind. You take a bullet for him. That was the extent of that relationship. That was the depth of that love. Not only that, it was phileo. It was a brotherly love that was going on right here. And it's kind of like when you're on a football team together, let's do this. We're in this together. We're now one unit. That's what was going on there. That was the depth of that relationship and the tightness in which they had. Well, where else do we see this in scripture, you guys? In the New Testament, the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. And do what? Love your neighbor as yourself. It pops up for us again. The thing is, when I think about that, that's including everyone, you guys. That should be my heart's desire. I'll be honest. I probably don't love everyone just like that. But the thing is, think about it. At least be willing to do that for family members, for close friends, because I think that's a tall order to, take, you know, to have that posture towards every single person. In Proverbs 18, 24, it says, there's a friend who sticks closer than the brother. So I ask, are you that loyal friend, and do you have that loyal friend? In other words, do you have and are you a Jonathan? Do you have and are you a Jonathan? So not only was Jonathan selfless and loyal, he was also other-centered, which brings me to our next point. So how was he like Christ? He was other centered. 1 Samuel 20, 32 to 33. Why should he be put to death? What has he done, Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled a spear, spear at him to kill him. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. But let's look at how this actually relates to Jonathan. In his father trying to kill him, we see that Jonathan risked his life for David, just as Christ risked his life for us. I love this because we see how he was even willing to die to uphold the covenant of God, though it was life-threatening. Why? Because he was other-centered and he knew his God. We see this backed up in Jeremiah 29, where the Israelites were able to move forward. Why? Because they were trusting in the promises of God. Well, God did the same for Jonathan because in 2 Samuel 9, 6-7, when David was king, he kept his promise. He actually not only took care of Jonathan's um, family, when Jonathan died, he raised his son. He kept his promises. In the same way, God keeps his promises to us. So then Jonathan, although he was the right for heir to the throne, he was willing to do things God's way, and he was willing to relinquish it, rather than obeying his own desires. This is a simple testimony to us, that, when, that God will always provide when we trust in him and when we trust in his promises and we're other-centered. I don't think it's a joke, you guys, when we look at John 10, 10, and Christ is speaking, and he says, um, I've come that they might have life and have it abundantly. Had Jonathan listened to Satan, he would have self-destructed and caused a great deal of pain to others. That's the work of the devil right there. But in being selfless like Christ, as stated in um, 18.4, where he gave everything to David, his tuning, sword, bow, and um, belt, he was now being a life-giving friend to David, who was to become the future king. We learned, this, we learned that sometimes God's will is for us to yield the role we have, or thought we have, might, or should have, to another. But it doesn't stop there. We're called to love them and do all that we can to help them in that role. God loves when we humbly care for others and strengthen their faith. As we read in John 15, 13, it says, No greater man has this than he laid down his life for his friend. This typifies Jonathan's selfish, self, selfless relationship to David. There are few friends I would not hesitate to die for, and vice versa. But at times, I think we're called to be other-centered in a variety of other ways, you guys. Whether it's financially, emotionally, relationally, with titles, or time, or even socially. I had a roommate who typified this when I was in college. It was my sophomore year. His name was Hank. 
Um, he was extremely other-centered, you guys. He was one of those guys uh, that brought about conviction, but not, in not, not, not on purpose, but just by his lifestyle. He would get up at 6 o'clock every morning to have his quiet time. At 6 o'clock, I was just turning over on the other side, you guys, to finish getting some beauty rest, you know? Every morning, nonstop, having his quiet time. And he would very gently ask me, hey, Jazz, how are you doing as far as spending time in a word? He was very kind about it. He went home for the weekend, and his mom gave him cookies. He would come back, he would share them with me. One time he went on a one-day road trip. He brings me back a souvenir. What college roommate does that? He was just so other-centered. He was just very other-centered, you guys. And he wasn't extra. Yeah. The thing that really got me was how he was relationally other-centered. He was seeing this girl. And I was like, I think something going on. So I got all of his grits, and I asked him, y'all kicking it? And he just kind of looks at me. I'm like, that's you? You know? <laughs> he was like, well, yeah, but we want to just have a really good relationship. And so thus we're starting out as friends, and yes, we're all seeing one another, but we want to just have a you know, foundational relationship with Christ and everything. And that's what he was like. And also there are other people, sometimes they're dating, you know, they, they've broken up, and so we don't, want to, we don't want others to be hurt by our relationship. So that's why, you know, we're in. I was like, oh, so they're just keeping on down low. I'm like, man, there's nothing wrong with that. You got a boo, you got a boo, you know? So boom, that's who you kick it with. That's your girl, you know, or you're shorty, you know? Or if you're a woman, that's your man. There you go. Like Denise, Todd is your boo, right? Yes or no? Okay, he your man, right? <laughs> yeah, y'all imagine Denise talking like that? That's my man. I'm like, hey, she's from the other side of the hill, you know? <laughs> Denise don't talk like that, do you? <laughs> you talk like that, me, you're going to start kicking it, because I'm like, dang, she down. <laughs> in all honesty, you guys, getting back to the sermon, in all honesty, this just reminds me simply of um, the deep concern that that roommate actually had for others, you guys. And it reminds me of what Jonathan was like. He really cared about others. He cared about David. He cared about the kingdom. He cared about what would happen in the future, okay? Because though he was prince and next in line to become king, he gave it up fully aware that he wouldn't have songs sung about him. He wouldn't have people following him. He wouldn't get the notoriety that David, had, that David would get someday. Some of the lords continue to teach me is how not to desire the fanfare of David, but to be okay with being in the background. That's hard. You know, I'll admit it. And that's hard because it takes debt to self. It takes a sober self-perception. It takes being other-centered, like Jonathan. Just recently, I had an opportunity to learn that from uh, one of the guys in our discipleship group. And he's significantly younger than I am. I had to go to Santa Barbara for a function. I hate driving, you guys. So I said, hey, man, you want to drive up to Santa Barbara with me? He was like, sure. And he already has a busy schedule, but he was like, okay, I'll come with you. And I was like, okay, it'll be good fellowship. You know, two hours there, two hours back. It was like three hours there, three and a half hours there. Who knows? But anyway... I get a text that morning, hey, Jazz, would you like me to drive? I'm like, oh, sure, and so I'm thinking we're going to drive my car. And he's like, oh, no, Jazz, I'll take my car. I'm like, no, let's take my car. Are you driving already? Just take my car. He says, oh, no, let me take my car. We drive in his car. I get up there, I do my thing or whatever. We're driving back home. He has to stop to get some gas. I get out my credit card. I say, hey, let me pay for it. He's like, oh, no, no, Jazz, let me pay for this. And I'm like, no, you've already done enough. Why don't I pay for it? And he's like, oh, no. What comes out of his mouth? I just want to bless you. I'm like, wow, as if though he hadn't done enough. I mean, it's just kind of like extreme other, other sentiments, you guys. It doesn't get any better than that. God was teaching me, this is what you need to do, Jazz. You need to emulate this younger brother. Just like David and Jonathan, and Jonathan was willing to you know, learn or be second to David, I need to learn the same thing from those who are younger than I am and never have a prideful attitude. I learned from my students in class. 
It takes great humility, but God has put them there. And Betsy and I talk about this all the time. When I get a crazy kid, especially, it's not so much about me changing that kid. A lot of it, God's put that kid in my life so he can change me. That's what was going on, you know, even as I met with that brother that time, you guys. The beauty of this, John 13, 1, where he explains how Jesus showed the full extent of his love, which led to the cross. And likewise, Jonathan emulates other sensitiveness in all his decisions, but he also showed great humility, which is my last point. So how was he like Christ? He was humble. 1 Samuel 20, 41. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. They kissed each other and wept together. But David wept the most. Let me paint this picture for you of what's going on, okay? You have David and you have Jonathan weeping like crazy. You know what it comes down to? This is the same picture that you would see when, his, when a father knows his son's been drafted and he's going to war and he realizes this is the last time I might see him. That would break any dad's heart. That's what was going on. That's why the bitter weeping and the sobbing and everything is going on here. And a constant kissing him on his forehead, you know, afraid. I mean, I never see him again. That is what this picture is all about right here. And when I read this picture, you guys, when I read this passage, it reflects what our spiritual life should look like toward Christ. The reason that David wept so hard was because he realized the extent to which Jonathan loved him. He was willing to die for him. Thus, in the same way, I should be brought to a place of sobbing in my relationship with Jesus Christ. But not sobbing out of sorrow, but sobbing out of joy that you would do that for me, Lord. That you would go to the cross and bear my sins. That's what it should be like. The thing is, I think in third world countries and in, uh, in persecuted countries, they get it a little better than we do. Because when you read accounts or you talk to friends who've gone there and visited, they'll flat out tell you that, you know, in many of those countries, you know, whether it's Korea or Iran or, you know, Muslim countries or China or whatever it may be, they weep as they pray in silence or they weep as they mouth the words to worship songs. Why? Because they realize what has taken place for them and they don't have the freedom to express it in other places, but they'll express it there. And they have these hour-long prayer services and nothing's wrong with the way we do church or whatever, but they see it a little differently and they consider the cost that was paid for them. Is that your heart, Jazz? Do you weep, even if not outwardly, inwardly, over what Jesus has done for you? John 3.16 paints that picture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have eternal life. Or Romans 5, I think it's 16, says, but God demonstrates his own love to us, and while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for me, you guys, even in the, mess, even in the midst of all my filth and everything. That should bring me to a place of falling on my knees, bowing down before him three times or three million times, just like David did with Jonathan. And I will say this, it takes a posture of total humility to do this. David saw what it cost Jonathan. That's why he wept so much. It may seem like David is being the humble one here, but remember, Jonathan is the one who's humble. He's the one who gave up everything. In the same way, we must remember what our humble, humble King Jesus Christ did for us. It really cost him everything, his life. Speaking of humility and relationships, Jonathan's to David is like that of Barnabas's to Paul, where the spiritual giants, being Jonathan and Barnabas, would someday be outshined by those they actually mentored. But it wasn't a source of bitterness, but one of joy, because there were men who were after God's own hearts. It reminds me of John 14, 12, where Christ tells us, you're going to do greater things than I've done. It's like, wow. 
We were never outtrained Christ, but we're going to do things that he did not do, that he's called us to do. Why? Because we have the Spirit of God living in us, and with God, all things are possible. But yeah, he's okay with it because he's a humble king. He pushes us forward. He died in order to advance the kingdom and advance us forward, you guys. That's just the deepest level of humility. As we further examine the character of John, Jonathan, we see how um, he was different from other kings. For example, after Solomon, when other, uh, when other kings became kings, in order to become king, there were these bloody coups. In order to stay king, there were these bloody coups. You did whatever you had to pr to protect your little your little you know royal kingdom or whatever it may have been. Jonathan wasn't like that. Nah, he wasn't like that at all. He abdicated his throne because he because he be, not because he was weak, but because he knew what was best for the kingdom of God. Remember, he was a man of great strength. He was a man who was very swift. He was an excellent archer and slinger. He was like the man, and I really think he was the man because he was like Christ. He was willing to be second in line because he wanted others to be first, because he knew what God's plan was. It was because of his humble character. As we established earlier in 18.2-4, he gave David everything, even his royal robe. He held on to nothing too tightly because he knew that God would supply his every need. And he wasn't prideful asking, what about me? I deserve to inherit the kingdom. He walked in humility out of a love for the Lord, but also out of a love for his friend. We've got to remember God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So keep that in mind whenever there's that little inkling to self-promote. God is more interested in our spirit of humility than in great works. Once again, our attitude must be like that of Christ. Where that John says in John 3.30, I must decrease so that he may increase. And the most humbling thing you could ever do is accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I'm going to wrap it up right now. And just share a, piece, a few things. Let's ask ourselves, am I like Jonathan, who is like Jesus, loyal, willing to relinquish all that God, uh, willing to relinquish all to see God's kingdom advance, other-centered, a humble? See which one of these two character um, traits God wants to develop in your life and get someone to help you. But before we can seek to be like Jonathan, we must first seek to have a relationship with Jesus. Rahab was a prostitute, you guys. David was a murderer, a liar, an adulterer, and probably many other things that aren't listed in the Bible. Yet God not only accepted them, he restored them, and he used them. So God isn't repulsed by our past. He sees value in all of us. God can use you in spite of your background. When you consider, you know, the power of his almighty, you know, hand, outstretched hand, he can save any of us from anything. In fact, I tell you this, whether life is going well for you or whether life isn't going so well, Jesus is reaching out to you right now. I want to share a few verses that I think are pretty pertinent, okay? It actually talks about how you come to know Jesus, your Lord and Savior. Because in a crowd this size, there may be a few of you who've never come into a personal relationship with him. And I would never want you to leave here without knowing that. Hebrews 9.27, it says, It is appointed to a man to die once, and then to be judged. We will all stand before that judgment seat of Jesus Christ. And Bill was, you know, Bill, actually what you said was pretty right. Because it does talk about the goats in the Bible. There are those who are going to come into his presence, and others who are going to say, Depart. And there's actually a verse that talks about that, you know, where he talks about the goats, you know, being gone. Those who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they're going to come into heaven and be with him and dwell with him forever. Those who've never gotten to know him will not, okay? John 14, 6, there's a solution. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He stretched out his arms. He died on the cross so that you could come to know him and you could have a personal relationship. 
Romans 10, 9 and 10, it says, If we confess that our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart that you believe and are justified, with the mouth that you confess and are saved. They go together. What I say has to match who I am. My heart needs to be a reflection of what I'm professing to be. My profession has to be that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Lord means he leads my life. Savior means I put my trust in his death on the cross to save me from my sin. I cannot save myself. Your niceness, your money, your kindness, your intellect, none of those things can save you. Only Jesus can save you. And that's where we look at, uh, where we look at Ephesians 2, 8, 9, where it says, For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. It is the gift of God, not by works, that no one can boast. God's grace is what saves you. It's big enough to cover any of your sins. So if you're sitting here saying, but if only you knew what I did, Jazz. You know what? God knows it, and he still loves you, and he still has a plan for you, and he still welcomes you into his kingdom. I want to make that an invitation this morning, because we're actually going to have communion shortly. But the communion table is only for those who know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And it's not that we're segregating or pushing back, saying it ain't for you, but we want it to be for you. Not only so you can commune with us today, but so that you can commune with God forever. So if you've never known Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, a few of us will be on the side. We have Todd and Bill and I and a few others can stand on the side. And if you want to talk to us about what does it mean to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, we'd be more than happy to tell you about that. For the rest of us, as we move, as a worship team, may you come up, please? I just want to read First, um, first Corinthians 11, 24 um, to 25. It says... On the night he was betrayed, he took the bread. After giving thanks, he lifted it. And these were his words. This is my body broken for you. And as you eat it, you do this in remembrance of me. We have the bread over here, which we're going to take and dip, okay, over there. And the grape juice was symbolic of his blood. And then he goes on to say, on the night he was betrayed, he took the cup. After giving thanks, he lifted it. And he said, this is my blood poured out for you. And as you do this, you do this in remembrance of me. It's symbolic of the blood of Christ, which covers every single sin, past, present, and future. So right now, why don't we move into a time of communion, okay? And so I'll pray, and then worship team, you may start. And why don't we come up uh, from the sides or down the center aisle. Father, thank you so much for just how you've been excellently good to us and abundantly good to us. Let's start it with the cross of Christ, Lord, because you love us so much. And that started even um, before time began, if we can say that. But we, don't, we can't imagine that with our infinite minds. But you did it, and we're thankful for it. We thank you for inviting us to the table, Lord, the table of mercy, as we prepare the wine and the bread. Thank you so much, Lord. We ask right now, Lord, that um, as you're already in this place, that you would bring us to a place of humble adoration, that we'd be able to sit, confess to you, maybe confess to someone else, maybe seek you at the deepest of levels. I pray for those who don't have a personal relationship with you today, Lord, that they would not leave here accepting you as, as their Lord and Savior. Thank you so much as you allow us to commune. And it's your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen. Mm -hmm.